Let us take up in our hands the sacred word. For those who don't have Bibles, they're in the pew. Welcome and encouraged to read along with us in the gospel according to Luke. The New Testament is written by the finger of God through men, some 40 different authors over many hundreds of years wrote the one word of God just as he called them to and inspired them to do. And in all of the gospel accounts of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, which opened the New Testament as we call it, the New Testament, in all of those accounts is a record of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're turning to Luke at this time. We visit the different narratives at different times, but Luke chapter 24, that's for this morning's sermon and this evening's, they're connected as we consider the the visit of Jesus to the two men on the road to Emmaus, but now the visit of the women to the empty tomb, Luke 24, verses 1 through 12, hear the word of God. Now on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, after Jesus was crucified on that Friday, Very early in the morning, they, and that's the women, and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, That behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Those are angels. Two men in shining garments. Look out for angels. That's what they are. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven disciples. Judas is dead. He betrayed Jesus. Now there's just eleven. And to all the rest there were other disciples. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed marveling to himself at what had happened. Thus far we read Luke chapter 24, the word of God. May God bless us in the reading and now reflecting upon the Easter story, as we call it. No one saw it, you know. No one saw Jesus rise from the dead. Early that Sunday morning, He broke the dawn, as it were. The sun of righteousness rose with healing in his wings, and this is the far greater sun, even than the sun in the heavens. But no one saw it. No one saw it. And I suggest to you that it's just too glorious an event for people to have beheld 
or ever to behold something like that. You remember that no one saw Jesus come into the world. No one saw, obviously, the conception, the holy conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary. No one could expect it. No one could conceive of this sort of conception. That was a holy thing, that holy beginning of the one who is eternal and the eternally begotten Son of God. Who could understand that step down of God, that humiliation? And so I suggest to you that his step up, this glorification, this resurrection, was impossible for human eyes to behold We could never conceive it in our minds, as is clear from the confusion around it, and certainly we could not see it. Well, the problem of Easter Sunday morning was not simply that people couldn't see it, but they couldn't believe it. And throughout the narratives of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, that's on the forefront, as much as Jesus rising again and being an occasion for celebration and so on, is on the forefront the fact that the people who were his disciples even, they couldn't believe it even though he had told them he's going to die and then he's going to rise again on the third day. They couldn't believe it. And what I want to point out to you and to myself today, because you should know as you're visiting here, maybe for the first time, that the preacher, he preaches not only to the congregation, but to himself. But what I would want all of us to know here is that this unbelief is our difficulty too. It's not that we cannot see, it's that we cannot and will not believe such a thing as this one who's the living one who's risen from the dead. It's just not sensible to us. And even though we may confess we believe it, yet we're practical unbelievers. That's our problem. And so the sermon is not just to point that out and maybe to have us justify our unbelief because the preacher said that's all that we do is we don't believe, but it's to encourage us to believe And maybe there's some of us here today, maybe just one person, and that's enough for a sermon, who really needs the word that would call that person and all of us to believe, to be revived in our believing so that we know the life of the living one in our very breast. For faith, let's consider the one who was announced by the angels to the women as the living one. Let's consider that and also the living ones that are the recipients of this great truth and blessing of Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. While the women are doing this normal thing, uh, knowing the certainty of death and taxes, they're embalming, with spices, the body of Jesus. It had already been prepared in a way by Joseph and Nicodemus who had buried the body on uh, that Friday afternoon in the tomb, the new tomb. And they now are making sure are the women in their devotion to Jesus and his body that 
His body will be preserved and honored with their spices that they would anoint bodies with at that time in honor of the dead. Couldn't keep away the decomposition and the smell, and perhaps by this time, after three days, there was a smell from the tomb, but they came anyway. Their devotion was so great, these women. And the women's names are given in different places here in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. There's different names. Mary Magdalene, Joanna was one of the helpers of the disciples. Mary, the mother of James the Less, not James and John's mother, but another Mary. And there's others, and they might have come in two different groups. We're not for sure about how this all goes. It's the deep, dark dawn, like the the darkness before the dawn, after all. They themselves were so confused, but they come exactly to the right tomb, and they come with their loving devotion, even though they're misguided, and they're met at this time by an empty tomb. There's a stone that should have been rolled away in front of it. And children, that the stone on the tombs or the graves, might have been a cave, was to keep wild animals away or robbers. And this stone, big stone, would have taken several men uh, and their strength to move the stone. It would have been rolled in front of the grave and With this grave of Jesus, because of the fear of the Jews that the disciples would steal the body, there was a seal of Caesar Augustus, a a piece of a part of a a bit of wax with the the seal of the Roman Empire on it, so that people wouldn't dare to roll away the stone, because then you break the seal of Caesar and you're breaking his law and you could die for that. And there's a Roman guard as well. And the women aren't really concerned about that so much because they have a singular eye to this Jesus that they knew. But the stone is rolled away. We read in another place that there had been an earthquake and an angel had rolled away the stone. But long before, no, maybe shortly before they got there, Jesus had risen. And it wasn't, we should know, that the stone had to be rolled away for Jesus to get out of the tomb. Jesus went right through that rock, as he did also right through his grave clothes. But the stone was rolled away so that people could see the empty tomb. It was for the women's sake, and then later the disciples who would go there, so that they might see Jesus is not here, he's risen. And so... This is the setting here in that gray dawn, that early dawn of Resurrection Sunday morning. And they're met here by an extraordinary visit of two men in dazzling garments, shining garments, we're told in our text in verse 4. Two men who clearly from Matthew and other places are angels. Angels who come in human form. They're not humans. They come in human form, however, to be ministers to humans in their fallen state, even in their saved state. They would speak to them the truth as it is in Jesus to help them along. Angels are mysterious beings. 
And they're not like us. They're not made in the image of God, for example. Only human beings are. They never sin, at least the angels still in heaven. And they, however, are earnestly desirous of understanding this Jesus whom they serve by the appointment of God on the behalf of the glory of God. And, and they're shining. Oh, it's amazing. I don't know if I'd like to be in the presence of an angel. Would you? Maybe you say, sure, sure. And maybe you've been bolstered up to do this by all the entertainment that you entertain yourself with, and they have all these visits of monsters and aliens and from other galaxies and so on. But this is no other galaxy we should know from which these come. They come from heaven in the presence of God. And their shining garments bespeak the fact that they've been in the presence of God because God is light, and His light, as it were, rubs off on the inhabitants of heaven. And something of the holiness of God, therefore, is seen in this amazing visit of angels. Remember at the beginning of Jesus' life, when He's just a little babe, there's this heavenly host that visits the shepherds and that reminds them that there is this one born who is the Messiah, and glory to God and earth, peace, goodwill toward men. But here, at the exit of Jesus, there's another announcement by two men, two angels in shining garments, and all the women can do, however, is be afraid, and they shake in their proverbial boots, and they bow their faces to the earth, Amazing. So that's the light that they see in this extraordinary event in this otherwise ordinary thing called death and preparing bodies to be honorably discharged, as it were, from their life on earth. The ordinary thing visited by this extraordinary visit is outshined, however. The garments are the appearance of the angels is by the words of the angels. The words, the powerful words of the angels, a rebuke, but more of a revelation than a rebuke, as some commentator reminds us. These women are so fearful, they're so, so devoted to Jesus, the rebuke couldn't be that hard they're so ignorant, just like the rest of the disciples. The Spirit's not yet poured out, and they can't understand this thing that for the first time ever has come to pass, resurrection from the dead of Jesus, a representative of his church. But their words, why do you seek the living from among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. I didn't practice preaching or speaking like an angel, beloved. Maybe we could say it this way. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. The words themselves, no matter how you say them, are the, thing that sh the things that shine here. The gospel of the identity, the words, the works of Jesus. 
It's beautiful how faithful the angels are to their calling to be ministering spirits to the elect of God. They point them to the words of the Messiah, the fact of the Messiah, the glory of the Messiah. They call him the living one, the living one. And this says it all. We read in Psalm 115, it was our call to worship, God to whom praise should be given as the only God. That means he's the only living God, and he's, he's distinguished in that psalm and in all of the Bible is the one God, the living God, from dead idols. Forces that people imagine and then create so that they're shaped and so that they can be worshipped and bowed down to, those are idols. Idols are things that we think we need, for example, besides God, like a bottle of alcohol, or drugs, or people, or sex, or significance in stuff. Those are all idols if we're seeking to have them instead of God. And maybe some of us right now are, are, are hooked on this idolatry. That's really what it is instead of God, who's the only God. And that's what's said here of Jesus He's the living one. Before he even came to the earth and lived on earth, he was the living God. This is the Christian confession. There's Father, there's Son, there's Holy Ghost, one God, three persons, not three gods, one God, and Jesus is that living God, which means he's the only God and the only one of all virtue and infinity and eternity, he alone and not stuff or angels or other beings existed in eternity. He's the creator. So Jesus is said to be the word of God by whom God himself made the worlds. He is the express image of the living God. God lives him and dwells in him bodily. Colossians says, He's the living one. But here especially, the angels are pointing out that Jesus is the living one, and that's really how you ought to translate that, the living one who is the Messiah, the Savior. And they're alluding to his work on the cross, and now that he's risen for something other than to show that he's the living God, but it, there's something here that Jesus has, which is his agenda, his plan, and that is that he would save a people. So Jesus is this living God and this living and only Savior. And that leads us to this. The miracle of not only the message of the angels, but of the resurrection itself, is that there's this living one, and there will be living ones. Not God's, but God's people. I'm looking at living ones here. Understand that? When you come to church, it's about coming to church to worship the living God in Jesus Christ revealed as his living ones. 
This was the problem at the first Resurrection Sunday. It's the problem of all humanity, as we'll see presently in application. We're not living out Christianity, and therefore the living one seems to be just just a theory, and ours just a religion instead of a redeemer. But the fact is, the resurrection of Jesus proves that there are others who will live because he lives. He died as the representative of sinners. He rose as the head of the people of God, and they shall rise with him. Romans 6 reminds us of this connection. In verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. And so we are to reckon that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Living one, living so that we might live, sinners might live. Colossians says the same thing. If you were raised with Christ, there's the assumption. If the living one made you a living one, raised you up. If so, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Now that's the gospel, beloved. The gospel of the living one is that he lives and there are living ones because of it, as a consequence of this great wonder of God. But then I want to point to the works of this Jesus, more in particular, We've considered the wonder of Jesus, the living one, and that he makes living ones, and I'm looking at them, and I trust you're living at, looking at a living one in me. But this is all because of his works, you see. His work on Calvary. Uh, don't you understand that Easter Sunday is connected with Good Friday? This is the whole part and parcel of the Christian message. There is death first. There is this necessity of his death for sin that we might live in him. He must die first of all for sin and he must pay the price that we could not pay. There has to be blood. And as we considered on Good Friday, there has to be this rending of the veil this reconciliation of God and sinners. And the resurrection is the proof of it. It's the seal of God's stamp of approval on the death of Jesus is the life now of Jesus. It's God saying, that was a good death. That was the best death ever. The death of my son, whom I love and always loved, even while there was his punishment on the cross of 
The wrath of God who cannot behold iniquity except to punish it, and so he sees it on his son, whose sin, yours, mine. And he vented himself, as it were, in this divine sort of way, in perfect control and justice, yes, and in uncommon grace, saving grace and infinite mercy. So the living one who came to be among the dead as a dead one is distinguished in that he's not among the dead, though he died even and went to hell. Amazing. He's risen from the dead after the crucifixion. But then there's something that the angels have on their mind. Somehow they're aware of the fact that the empty tomb itself and the grave clothes lying as sermons on the ground through which Jesus left and, and, and went into a semi-glorious existence. Somehow the angels know that their shining garments will only be glitzy enough for a certain sort of reaction among the women. And so then they add something else to their testimony. And that's the testimony of, of Jesus himself. You notice this? He's not here, but he's risen. That's what they say. Should have been enough, you'd think. But then they say, remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified in the third day, rise again. That's when those women started doing some thinking for themselves. And they remembered his words, and then they returned from the tomb and witnessed to the disciples. Jesus had spoken repeatedly of his imminent demise, Luke 9, 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Verses 43 through 45 of Luke 9. While they marveled at all these things that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. He made a point of that. Get this. Get this, catechumens. Let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And then to name just one other passage, Luke 18 and verses 31 through 33. Then took the, he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Repeatedly, those were the words of Jesus And increasingly, those were the themes of the sermons of Jesus at the end of his life, his suffering, his death, and the necessity of that, as we'll see especially this evening. 
The wonder of Jesus is also seen in the works of Jesus and those words of Jesus. In words that now we witness of, and this will be my final point in application, words of Jesus to us today for us to be witnesses of Jesus today and always. The first preachers were angels. Angels, amazing. And the second were women, amazing. But angels, two angels then, no more angels here, are there? Not from heaven with shining garments. Angels, they are impressive to be sure. They come with the holiness of heaven shown in their very visage, in their garments. The dignity of their words. But something else is needed. The angels don't go to the disciples. The women do. And the women don't keep on and become apostles or hold special offices in the church. The apostles do and then men do. Why is this? Why not angels? You ever ponder this? Why doesn't God who ministers in other ways through angels make the angels preachers and constantly just get up in the pulpit and an angel? That'll show people a thing or two and we could advertise that. All of Comstock Park would be filled so as we advertise angels. But beloved, there's something about angels that they don't have. You know what they don't have? The grace of forgiveness. Angels, after all, were not redeemed on the cross. They didn't have to be. Only sinners are. So there's the testimony of angels. Oh, it's powerful, mighty powerful. But the women are pointed to the words of Jesus and they themselves are worked in by their heart, by the Holy Spirit. So it must be women then. Well, you got women. Women. Women here who are Recognized as women, and you know what letter the women had to wear at that time to show that they were only women? Women were not respected in early civilizations. They knew their place, and it was beneath men. Well, even as in a certain novel, a woman had to wear the letter A, the scarlet letter A, to show she was an adulteress, the women at that time wore the letter E, if not physically, but because they were women, and that was Eve, Evites, the shame, the cause of the sin of Adam, and then of the plunging of men into, the, into sin. But here they are, most unlikely, chosen by God, preached to by angels, and they themselves needing and knowing the redemption that is in Jesus, they will go 
to the disciples. They'll be the first ones who, yes, exercise their office of all believers, reminding us that we should too. So then they meet the men. And of course the story gets better, right? And there's something here that that comes to pass and now people are assured and but no, they return from the tomb and they go to the eleven and there's others there. And the words seem to those apostles like idle tales and they did not believe them. Peter went. He had trouble believing even when he saw the empty tomb and the grave clothes lying by themselves. He was marveling, not so much believing as marveling. But in general, all they thought of those words of the angels or or of the women was their idle tales. And I would point out to you that no doubt those women who came and who said, we saw angels, they also said to the disciples, remember the words that they themselves had been privy to, that we were all catechized him. Remember our catechism lessons by Jesus who said we, uh, he must suffer and he must die and then he will rise again and the third day and it's now the third day. Don't you think they pulled out all the stops and they were speaking to the disciples and I don't know how great their faith was, but certainly they were urging upon the disciples that something had happened. And most of them, Mary Magdalene, uh, as an exception, she had a special visit of Jesus, but most of them had not seen Jesus. But there they are preaching Jesus. And there they are, apostles are skeptics, prejudiced men. And women, if you think that the women of that day wore the letter E, the men wore, and they showed that it was a rightful outfit, they wore the letter P on their breast. That stands for pride and prejudice. There they are. Proud and prejudiced and bigoted men, they can't go beyond their nose to think of something other than death and taxes, and now what? So then you got preachers, and they preach, like yours truly, in a church that's weak in herself, but God is pleased to use that too. But now, here's the point I wanted to make and drive it home. We got the wonder of Jesus, beloved, He's the living one. He's risen from the dead. We have the works of Jesus. We have the words of Jesus. We have the witnesses of angels that we read in the Bible, not personally, but then there's women and then there's men and then there's apostles and and we have the rest of the New Testament. But how are we in responding to Easter Sunday you don't like that term? It's a pagan term for holiday, and the word is in the King James, Resurrection Sunday. How is it that we're not so alive as we think we are? I say this to my shame. 
across my shirt. A U, maybe. Unbelieving. And the prayer constantly, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. You like that? This is, this is a struggle. This is a challenge. The skepticism of the apostles, the lies of the Jews of that day, with regard to the resurrection of the dead of, of anyone and of Jesus, is, is like a, a great darkness upon us, a great cloud upon us. This world we live in is sucking us into its vortex and vortexes and black holes and darkness and all of the news, bad and good, that worldlings come up from or with. It just sucks us down because of our nature. You see, if we were just angelic ourselves and had no need of redemption and were above the fray, it'd be one thing, but we're right in it. And we have this flesh. And let's not look down upon the apostles and wonder at the, the women. They, they could have preached better or whatever. And then think that we're just, we're clear of it all. Now we have the Holy Spirit and there's a dynamo inside. It's true. And let's never forget that we are living ones because he lived. Not calling you here to doubt your Christianity. But I'm calling yourself and myself to a renewal of Christianity. Resurrection Sunday for your revival, your renewal of your vows, of your commitment. You see, no one there believed the witnesses. And no one today seems to be believing the witness of the entire Bible of God the living one in Jesus Christ revealed and he who was crucified for sinners being risen for their justification. That's the testimony of the Bible. And the angels were content even though they be angels to point to the Bible, to the words of Jesus. And as we'll see tonight, Jesus himself, though he had this, he is the word of God, pointed people to the Bible but what are people doing with the Bible today? Well, I know what they're doing. I'll tell you what they're doing. They're, they're cutting it to pieces. All the convenient parts we like. All of the hard parts to talk about sin we don't. All of the stuff that happened that could be replicated today, fine. And the wisdom of Jesus replicated in Ben Franklin or Buddha or something like that. There's a lot of wise people around. We're fine with that. But the miracles, the works of Jesus Christ, the fact that he's the only living God, because that's what's stressed here. He's the living one. That's hard to take. That's very hard to take. That's impossible to believe. Because you see, it's, it's so, well, it's, it makes me so uncomfortable, people say. Because the Jesus who rose is the Jesus who died, and the Christian religion is that he died for sinners. And so you have to admit you're a sinner for whom Jesus died if you're going to believe that he rose for you and that it's going to mean anything to you. 
But that is, I don't want to do that. I'm not so bad. And I got rights after all. And Jesus and his religion don't seem to acknowledge that, that we all have rights to do what we want to with our bodies and abort babies. And the Bible of Jesus says there's two created beings, and they're both human, but who are specially distinguished, even together as God's image bearers, as male and female, but that's not enough for us, we're saying. We're saying. And you think, beloved, that it's enough that people want to change their genders. The sin of the age is we want to trans Jesus. And I say this with reverence. People want Jesus to be trans. And I mean by this, not just to change his gender, though people would like a female Jesus or a black Jesus. They want Jesus to be simply different. He should change from who he is. And so they make him in their own image. Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus, who's for everybody. Jesus, who accepts you the way you are, even if you are walking in sin. Jesus, who is here for your health and your wealth. After all, he's risen from the dead. Wouldn't he, if he really loved us, make us rise from the, the foul of poverty and when he established justice in the earth and get rid of all disease? God, we live in this world, beloved. The fact is, we die in it too. And we ourselves have this problem of the diagnoses that doctors come up with and the prospect that we might die earlier than we thought. And we all know that lingering in the back of our life, unless Jesus comes, is that we will die. And so we react to that. And a reaction is not good because it's, well, we need more stuff. Well, we only go around once in life, and so let's have toys, and he who dies with the most toys wins. And let's not give a thought in our conversation, especially around the table or at the bar, of religion or politics or maybe sex. Certainly not, let's give a thought to Jesus of Nazareth, who's the living one. You see, it's all about our seeking Jesus among the dead. Think about that for a minute. The ladies are rebuked for seeking the living one among the dead. And this is what unbelief does. We imagine that Jesus is just like us. He lives, he might say a few good things and so on, but secretly he probably sinned, we don't know that, whatever. And then he dies. There's a beginning, there's an end to him. He's just like us. Well, this is the new Jesus. This is the Christ that people want, a different one. He's like us. Give us a friend. Give us a companion for life's journey. Enough about the Savior stuff and the Lordship stuff. Just give me a, a friend who can hug me, who can be with me, and affirm me. Beloved, that's unbelief. 
Why do we seek the living one among the dead? You materialists, you unbelievers, why do we do that? Why do we complain about what we have, knowing nothing about the fact that God, who is God, knows what is wisest for what we have, what job we have, whether we're single, whether we're married? He is wise. He's the living one, and he makes us to live even when he takes things away, maybe especially so that more and more we cling to him and less to our stuff. We need, beloved, to go to the wonder of Jesus, to contemplate the works of Jesus and hear the words of Jesus again. The words. Away with the distractions. Away with hearing and seeing and believing other things. Because you know that's what unbelief is. Unbelief is not believing in nothing. Unbelief is believing in something else than Jesus. So it's either Jesus or something else, or a thousand other something else's and someone else's. Starting with yourself, you believe in yourself. Hosea is the final passage I want to leave you with. It's striking that I preach on this someday. Hosea speaks of the resurrection of Jesus and of yours. Chapter 6, come and let us return to the Lord. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we might live in his sight. Let us know and let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. He will bless us. You see the connection there. The call to revival by Hosea is grounded in the fact of this resurrection. Certainly prophesying ahead to the resurrection of Jesus, which is fundamental, the resurrection of the living one, fundamental for us to be living and revived. That's our hope, though. Sure hope. In Old and New Testament, these are the words of Jesus. Remember them. Son of God, the Son of Righteousness has risen with healing in his wings, and he will not set. Live for him. Amen. We pray, O oh God, that you would bless us. Revive our souls. Take us to the other world, even though we be in this world. Help us to marvel at the things that you have revealed in the New Testament to sinners of the first century, and now you are revealing to sinners of the 21st centuries. Lord, we pray, have mercy and fill us with life and faith and courage and humility and a godliness 
that bespeaks the fact that we have met with the living God and we are not consumed because Jesus is crucified. That Friday was good and Jesus is risen. That Sunday is the best, an emblem of our eternal rest. Amen.